Well, that was a scene from the film Ray, based on the life of musician Ray Charles, who, as I'm sure you know, uh, was blind, er, became blind at the age of eight uh, after contracting glaucoma. And in this scene, you see the, the challenges faced by his mother as she attempts to help him become the kind of person who can survive in a world where he can no longer see. And you see the struggle here, right? The natural desire to kind of swoop in and, and make it okay and just comfort him and be the nurturer. But also the recognition that that is really not what he needs. That if he's going to, to thrive, to flourish as a person... He needs to struggle, and he needs to learn from that struggle. It was interesting. Uh, I was watching some of these clips from the film, trying to figure out what I wanted to show, and um, my daughter, Grace, was watching them with me. And her initial response was, Man, Dad, that mom's really mean. And it does feel that way. If you've ever had to do this, you know how difficult that is. But in reality, letting her son struggle was the biggest gift she could give him because it gave him the tools that he needed to become a functioning adult, to to become someone who ultimately became a star. But he couldn't have done it if he didn't have to struggle. We're continuing a series that we've been in for a couple of weeks that we've called Sovereign. And really what we're doing in this series is we're looking at two kings um, who their story is kind of one of the key stories in the life of the people of Israel. And that's Saul and even more so his successor, David. And we're looking at how the rise and fall of these rulers, what they show us about who God is and how God interacts with us as human beings. And asking what can we learn from these figures? What can we learn from their, their struggles and their experiences in life with God and others? And this morning we're looking at probably one of the, if not the most famous stories in all of the Bible. A story that if I went up to anybody on the street, probably eight out of ten of them, and that might even be a low estimate, would have some category for this story. And that's David versus Goliath. The shepherd boy and the giant. So again, whether you have any Bible knowledge or not, you probably have some category for what that's about. Even if it's just... There's a little guy, there's a rock and a big guy, big guy dies. And there'd be some kind of lesson you could probably glean from that. And so it's hard to approach a story like this fresh. But I think if we look at this, there's actually a lot of layers to dig into in this story. Way more than we can actually do this morning. But there's two things in particular that I want to look at together as we kind of re-examine this very, very strange but very common story in our, kind of in our cultural narrative. It's become kind of intertwined in a lot of how we think about, you know, w- whether it's sports. We talk about David and Goliath stories, right? The, the, the small uh, school that comes up against the big powerhouse Division I school and, and, and what happens there. 
whether it's in, in business, the unlikely success stories, this David and Goliath story is a part of our cultural narrative. But what does it really mean? What can we learn from it? So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 17. We're going to look at a couple of portions. It's a longer chapter. And the verses will be up on the screen, so you can just follow along with me as I read. 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 4. Uh, before I start reading, I guess, just a little bit of an intro. Um, at this point, Israel, the nation of Israel, is at war with the Philistines. And they have set up kind of camps on opposite sides of a valley, and they're facing each other. And th- this, is, this is a big battle scene that we're walking into as we enter 1 Samuel chapter 17. <clears throat> verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, which is nine feet. Kind of big. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, which is about 125 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, or about 15 pounds. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Okay, so pause for a second. So we have these two um, armies facing each other, and this is not actually that uncommon of a way for ancient armies to to battle. Uh, The way they understood how life worked was that they thought what was playing out here in, in the kind of material world, was simply kind of a representation of a bigger reality, of what was happening with the gods. And so when the Philistine people came out and fought the Israelites, they really saw it as a battle of gods, Israel's God versus the Philistine gods. And so often in the ancient world, what they would do is they'd send out like their best warrior to fight the best warrior from the other army. And they just assumed that what happened in that combat, in that um, you know, man versus man, the biggest, the strongest, the most skillful, that whatever played out there was really what the gods were up to. And so this was kind of a very normal way of doing ancient warfare. So you have Goliath, this giant, coming out, calling out the nation, the, the God of Israel, mocking them defying them for 40 days. And the warriors, the the biggest, the strongest, the best trained in all of Israel are cowering because they know what happens if they go down there to fight the giant. This is not about strategy. They will die. They They get that. It's pretty clear. Meanwhile, you have David. Now, David, if you remember from, if you were with us last week, we talked some about David and his backstory. David was the youngest of eight. He was just anointed king, kind of prior to this, kind of secretly. Saul lost his kind of place as king, um, and, and David was anointed king. But no one really knows that yet. So he's the youngest of eight, and he's stuck being the shepherd. All of his older brothers are out at battle, and David's at home taking care of the sheep. But from time to time, his dad sends him to the battlefield with food to take to the soldiers and to the commander and to kind of figure out what's going on. So we see David shows up on the battlefield, and he starts kind of asking questions. Why isn't anybody fighting the giant? 
what's going on. And when then he hears that the king, Saul, has actually, he's offered a reward for anyone who will fight the giant. And so David starts asking, what's the reward? What's the person going to get who fights the giant? And the word of this gets back to Saul, the king. He's like in his king tent, hanging out, hears about this guy who's walking around, asking all these questions, and asks for David to be brought to him. Now again, he still doesn't know that David has kind of been secretly anointed king to be his successor. He, he doesn't know that. Uh, he calls David in and asks him what's going on. David said to Saul, verse 32, <clears throat> Let no one lose heart on account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. The un- this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistines. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. So it's, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. I mean, not just that this kind of young shepherd boy defeats this nine-foot-tall giant, but here's this kind of, this young man, secretly anointed as king, who comes before the current king, whose job it is to ensure that the nation is protected. And what does he do? He sends out the kid with no experience. Sure, you're the only one who's willing to go. Why don't you take a stab at it? And unwittingly, puts him in the position that Saul, the current king, should be, right? Going out and saying, hey, I'm the king. I will represent our nation. But instead he sends David. It's kind of remarkable. And even more so that it works, that David, in fact, is able with a sling and a couple of stones to beat this giant. But I think there's something critical we need to learn from this story that can have really significant implications in our lives 
if we pay attention to it. Two things that I want to point out that we see in the text that are, I think will be helpful for us to reflect on in our lives. First of all, we see in David's story that significant critical to him being able and equipped to defeat Goliath was his experience as a shepherd facing lions and bears. That these challenging events in his life created an opportunity for him to take on this giant. And in the same way, challenging events in our lives present remarkable opportunities for growth if we're open, if we're paying attention. Now, this is the kind of thing that I think most of us would give lip service to. Most of us would say, sure, it's really important during difficult times uh, that we pay attention to what we might be learning. But the reality is, that's not what we want. That's not what we're looking for. Most of us, in our day-to-day lives, what we want, what we expect, what we feel entitled to, is smooth sailing, right? Like, we expect things to go well, you know, life to kind of work out generally the way we expect it to. We don't expect big hiccups, tragedy, difficult things. That's not what we want. And when it does come, we feel somehow like we've been sold a a bill of goods, that this isn't what we deserved. But interestingly, it's these difficult times, these, these experiences that we would never ask for, this adversity that is kind of the cauldron from which the most beautiful, meaningful things in our lives typically grow from. I mean, think about David's experience. So again, youngest of eight, and while his older brothers kind of get to go out to the battlefield and be big bad warriors, he has to take care of the sheep. It's kind of lonely, right? It's just him and the sheep out in the field. It's obscure. It's not exactly the fast track to being recognized. I mean, as someone who's anointed king, it's not quite the way you get your face out there, hanging out in the fields, watching the sheep. And it's dangerous. I mean, wild animals, lions, bears show up. They want to eat the sheep. You have to stop them from eating the sheep. This is not easy. This is not a position of power. This is not even what David would ask for, but it is what he's been given. Now, he could be bitter, frustrated, resentful that this is the spot he's in. But instead, what we see, at least what we see in this story, is David recognizing the opportunity that exists in the midst of this less-than-ideal situation the opportunities for learning and growing that he experiences in this obscure, out-of-the-way, modest role as a shepherd. And as we go through the biblical account, what we see is this time as a shepherd was the key time in shaping who he would be, not just as a warrior against the giant, but as a king. That challenging time 
the time he probably wouldn't have asked for, the role he didn't want, was what he needed to become the person who could lead the nation of Israel and shape much of how they understood who God was and what God was doing in the world. The most challenging experiences are often the best places for us to learn and grow. So tonight, I get the uh, opportunity to cross an item off my bucket list. Um, my wife and I, along with a couple of friends, are going to immediately after uh, the service here make our way to uh, Manhattan and uh, to Madison Square Garden to watch U2. Um, I am a huge fan of U2. Uh, that's an understatement. I, I, love, uh, I love U2. Um, I was just talking to someone the other day, and I was saying, like, I, there's a lot of great contemporary worship music out there, really good stuff. Um, but when people, not that anybody ever asked me this, but when I think about what draws me to worship, I don't think much about what some of us might typically think of as contemporary worship music. I think of you too. When I want to worship, when I want my heart to swell and my, my spirit to soar, when I want to feel connected to God, I typically put on something that Bono is singing. And while Clearly, there are people in the world, probably lots of people in this room, who don't like U2. Um, my kids, I forced them over the last week to listen to U2 nonstop whenever they're in the car with me. And they regularly refer to it as old guy music. Um, so I'm not necessarily... I mean, at first, I've, I don't even know what song my wife listened to uh, with them. Uh, on the, there was a song on the radio, and afterwards, she was like, hey, this is, this is the band that Dad and I are going to go listen to. And they were like, oh, that's awesome. You guys are so lucky. And then I, I was like, oh, great. They're going to love you too. I don't even know what song that was. But then I started playing them U2 songs. And they're just like, this is so lame. Can we, um, can we listen to something else, country music, uh, anything? Um, so it was really disheartening for me. But I forced them to listen to it. Um, but anyway, the reason why the lyrics of U2, like them or not, are so deep and so laced with spiritual themes and beauty is because they come out of a place of remarkable pain. Bono, um, whose real name is Paul Hewson, uh, when he was 14, his mother Iris was attending the funeral of her father, Bono's grandfather. And during the funeral, she suffered a brain hemorrhage and died. From that point on, uh, understandably, Bono's father, Bob, didn't quite know how to recover, particularly as it concerns parenting. He, he didn't do a great job, particularly with uh, the rebellious, feisty Bono, Paul. Uh, he didn't do a very good job relating to him. Paul felt very isolated, like there was, there was no one who, who really understood him, who really got him. There was a hole there. Bono would later claim that his dad's unspoken message to his children was, to dream is to be disappointed. And that it was in fact that lesson that drove him to have huge, audacious goals for his life. In, uh, in the book U2 by U2, which only a U2 geek would own, um, Bono says this about reflecting on being a rock star. 
He says, you don't become a rock star unless you've got something missing somewhere. That is obvious to me. If you were of sound mind or a more complete person, you could feel normal without 70,000 people a night screaming their love for you. Blaise Pascal called it the God-shaped hole. Everyone's got one, but some are blacker and wider than others. It's a feeling of being abandoned, cut adrift in space and time. Sometimes this stuff follows the loss of a loved one. So many years later, my own hole can still open up. I don't think you can ever completely fill it in this life. You can try to fill it up with songs, family, faith, by living a full life, but when things are silent, you can still hear the hissing of what's missing. I think that's so, it's so sad, but it's also amazing to recognize that this beauty, this depth, comes from a place of real brokenness and pain. And frankly, that's really the only place that beauty and depth and meaning typically comes from. That unless you've experienced some kind of adversity, some kind of deep challenge, you haven't also experienced true beauty and life and meaning. And I don't know what specific challenges each of you is facing. I mean, you're human, so there's something. Even those of us with the most cushy, comfortable lives experience adversity at some level. Maybe not to the same extent of of others, but something. I mean, it could be relational conflict in your marriage or, or with your kids, something you just can't get past. It could be a loss of a job or maybe being in a job that you hate, that you feel like there's no way out of. You can't leave it because you need the money, but there's no future. You don't like what you do. Maybe it's financial difficulties. You're really struggling to pull things together financially, and you're not quite sure how you're going to get on top of it. Or maybe it's loss of a loved one. Someone you deeply care for has died. We could go on and on. The human experience is full of adversity and suffering. That's part of what it means to be human. But in this story, what we see with David is that while adversity isn't what we want, it is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to be open to growth and change, to be open to to beauty coming out of ashes, life coming from death. So that's one. And directly related to it, directly related to this fact that that in our challenges, we have an opportunity for growth. We see that as we open ourselves up to growth, we're given gifts to use for the sake of the world. You have been given gifts, and the world will be better if you use them. In this story, we see that uh, in the kind of episode where Saul tries to put his armor on David. Right? So David comes in, and Saul's like, all right, you're going to go fight the giant. Here's the royal armor. 
Now, it's the king's armor, so it's probably the best armor. So Saul's trying to help him out, right? Like, you're going to go fight this guy, wear this armor, it's really important. You won't, well, you'll still probably die, but it, it'll, you know, it'll stave that off for a little bit. And what does David say? He's like, I, I, I can't use these. I'm not, I'm not used to them. Now, now, we don't know what that means, if it's like, you know, he's not quite the, you know, they don't fit right, or probably more likely he just hasn't trained in military gear. He doesn't, he just can't jump into a battle situation with armor without having tried it. It's not him. It's not who he is. It's not what he knows. So what does he go to? Well, he goes to what he learned in his lonely, modest, obscure role as the youngest brother watching the sheep. And in that time, he learned how to use a sling and that he could trust God against lions and bears. And so he says, thanks for the armor, but I think I'm going to actually take what I know and I'm going to trust that the same God who showed up with the lions and the bears will show up with the giant. And in the same way, as you and I go through adversity, And we open ourselves up to learning to what God might be doing even in the difficult place. Not, God, how do you get me out of here? But God, what do you have for me in this? We develop gifts that the world needs that only you can offer. If you would have met Sonia Sotomayor when she was seven, you would not guess that she would be a Supreme Court justice. A couple of reasons for that. Um, For one, she was a she, and at the time, there were no female Supreme Court justices. She was also Latina. So she had those two things going against her. And she also, at the age of seven, developed diabetes. Now, growing up, as a seven-year-old in the South Bronx with diabetes, a Latina woman, significant challenges that someone faces. Add to that that she had uh, a mom who had to work constantly to compensate for her father who was an alcoholic and eventually drunk himself to death. And there wasn't much about her life that made you think, this woman is destined for greatness. But if you talk to her, she would say, actually, that was critical in making me who I am. Because when she was seven years old, she knew she couldn't depend on her mother to prepare her insulin for her in the morning. And she couldn't prepare on her drunken father, or depend on her drunken father. And so she, at seven, would get up, make her own breakfast. After she made her breakfast, she would boil water, to sterilize the insulin needer so she could give herself a shot and then she could walk to school every day. And reflecting on that time, she said it was the combination of her disease, her father's addiction, and her experience in that poverty that gave her what she called the existential independence that she needed to eventually ascend to the highest court in the land and become a trailblazer as the first Latina Supreme Court justice. She's like, I 
couldn't, I wouldn't have had what I needed to do that if I hadn't experienced that life. She didn't want it, didn't ask for it. She had to do it again. My guess is she probably would have given herself a bit of an easier road. But it was that suffering, that adversity, that enabled her to be the kind of person who could actually be the first Latina Supreme Court justice. She had to go through it to be that person, the person who she became. In an article published in the Harvard Business Review by Warren Bennis and Robert Thomas, they looked at the effects of adversity specifically on leaders. And they write this about their research. They say, our recent research has led us to conclude that one of the most reliable indicators and predictors of true leadership is an individual's ability to find meaning in negative events and to learn from even the most trying circumstances. Put another way, the skills required to conquer adversity and emerge stronger and more committed than ever are the same ones that make for extraordinary leaders. What shapes a leader, the, the one thing they can point to, the one commonality in effective leaders is that they've gone through adversity and they've learned how to adapt, how to adjust, how to grow through it. And most of us aren't, we're not leaders, at least not in any formal sense. But all of us have influence. We all have people in our lives, whether they're kids, spouses, friends, coworkers, people we supervise, oversee at work. We have opportunity to influence. And it's the adversity that we go, go through. If we're open to what God might be doing, even in the midst of a less than ideal situation, that has the potential to shape us into the kind of people who have something beautiful to offer the world. So how can we be these kind of people? How can we, like David, learn through adversity, develop gifts that can be a gift to others? Real quick, I think there's a couple of different things that we need to keep in mind. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, there's no cookie-cutter answer. There's no, there's no quick fix of, like, here's how you make it all better. That's not what this is about. But there are some things we can do to make sure that we're open to what God might be doing in us in the midst of adversity. First of all, Number one, I think we need, to, we need to develop the mindset where we expect that God is at work even in our suffering. That for those of us who are looking to walk in the way of Jesus, that our expectation is not just that God is in the good things, the enjoyable things, the pleasurable things, but that even in the suffering, even in the difficulty, God is at work. James wrote in his letter in the New Testament, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James is saying that there's something about adversity, about trials, that we actually need to become whole people. Now, we need to handle it well because there's a lot of bad things that can happen if we don't handle adversity well. But if we're open to God being at work in us, even in the midst of adversity, especially in the midst of adversity, 
This is how we come to find wholeness, James says. It's how we become complete. So how can we do that? How can we begin to like, shift our thinking to expect that God is at work even in adversity? I think one really easy thing we can start to do is when you hit a hard patch, whether it's, again, relational stuff, stuff at work, financial, whatever it is, write down what you're learning. Journal. Take a journal and take some time every day to write down maybe even just the questions you have. What questions are you asking as you go through this? And what things are you learning? As a conscious, practical reminder that this is an opportunity for you to grow, not simply something to just kind of put your head down and push through. Journaling can be a practical reminder, a real easy way to pay attention to what God might be doing. Number two, um, so we, can, we need to expect that God is at work. Number two, don't point fingers. The quickest thing that we want to do when difficult things come is try to determine who's to blame, whether it's God or the universe or our boss or our spouse or whoever. But it's also the easiest way to kind of absolve yourself from having any role in learning anything. So don't point fingers Rather, look for the opportunities that you have to learn, to own what you can own in the situation. Third, you need to check bitterness. Uh, one of the real uh, kind of easy things to happen when we face adversity is to get bitter and resentful that things are not going the way we wanted them to. And this, kind of, this works with the finger pointing, because if we start finger pointing, then immediately we start growing bitterness and resentment towards the people that we're pointing fingers at. It's that person's fault. It's the, it's the fault of that system, whatever it is. And we need to recognize that that, whether those, those things are true or not, maybe someone did do something horrible to you, bitterness doesn't do anything to anyone out there, but it destroys you in here. The writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says this, Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Bitterness is described as as a plant with roots that bears fruit in your life. And if we allow bitterness to take root, it will be destructive in our lives and eventually in the lives of people around us that we care about. Rarely at the person we're bitter at, usually at others that we love. So instead of being bitter, we need to practice to learn to forgive, to release people to, to offer forgiveness freely and regularly, remembering that we are forgiven, and so we offer forgiveness. And then finally, we need to learn to share our story. One of the great things about having people, uh, people here who a little older, maybe a little more gray on top, is that they have undoubtedly experienced quite a bit of adversity in their lives just because they've lived longer. And if, if they've been open, if they've been listening, they've learned a lot. And we have so much to gain from them and from one another. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, the the early church leader, says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, 
so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. One of the realities of this is that what we're learning through our adversity is for us, but it's also for others. Right? This, is, this is where you're developing gifts for the sake of the world. The lessons you're learning, the ways that you're growing are not just for you. Others need them too. And that's part of why we understand that this, isn't, this faith thing isn't an individual enterprise. It's a communal thing. It's something that we do together as a community. We need to hear one another's stories. We need to share our own stories so that together we can be reminded that even in the most difficult situations, God is at work. We can grow. We can learn. We can become complete people. All along the way, we have options, right? David had options. He could have chosen to to be bitter, to be resentful, to wait for someone to hand him his rightful place as king. Or he could choose in the moment to ask, all right, what, what has God given me from adversity? What have I learned? What tools did I ha- do I have? What gifts can I give to the world? And he can use them, he used them to the best of his ability in the moment. And this is all you and I can do. We can choose bitterness and resentment when we find ourselves in situations that aren't ideal, places we wish we weren't. Or we can choose to say, what can I learn from this? What might God be saying to me in the midst of this really unpleasant situation? How can I grow through it, not just get through it? I think in this story we see the better way that David shows us ultimately what is the way of Jesus. That in suffering, in fact in death, is where we find God bringing life and hope and meaning. If we're open to it, if we're listening. Father, I'm really grateful that suffering is not just suffering, that adversity is not just adversity, but they are opportunities, they are invitations to learn and to grow. To be aware of something that you might be saying or doing to shape us to change us, to make us complete. And ultimately, we remember, we reflect on Jesus' suffering, on his death and resurrection, through which you offer us completion and hope and meaning. Would you help us in whatever adversity we're going through, whatever my friends are facing today, this moment in their lives, would you give them the ability to step back and recognize that somehow in that you are speaking, you are working, you are inviting them to learn and to grow. Give them ears to hear what you're saying, even in the midst of adversity, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.